Warning, this podcast contains heavy spoilers for not just one movie, but entire franchises. We highly recommend going and watching these movies before listening to us as a companion piece that stitches all the timelines into one creepy, crime-ridden story. There will be no more spoiler warnings. We do not break character. After this, there is no turning back. You've been warned. Hit the music. <laughs> you are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! This is an old joke, right? I heard this when I was about Riley's age. Yeah. It had to be about 10, maybe, when I heard this joke. So it's a classic. Okay. But I haven't heard it in years. So when I've read it this time, it made me laugh. So I'm going to go with it. All okay. right. So there's a boy and his friends and they're being bullied, right? Mm. And the bullies are calling them bastards and bitches. Okay. And the boy goes home and asks his dad, Dad, what are bastards and bitches? His father replies, bitches are ladies and bastards are gentlemen. Mm. then the boy goes upstairs and he sees his mom as he enters the room he accidentally drops one of her perfume bottles his mother roars shit boy turns again and says mom what shit she says it's perfume so he goes back down to his dad who's carving some chicken his dad accidentally cuts himself and he yells fuck boy asks dad what does fuck mean dad says oh uh, it means preparing he then follows his dad upstairs a few minutes later and his mom and dad are about to have sex and his dad says, where's the condoms? Little boy asks again, dad, what are the condoms? Dad goes, shit, fuck. Condoms are, uh, they're coats and jackets, son. So the following night, his father invites over some important business clients. The boy opens the door for him and says, hello, please come in, bastards and bitches. Hang your condom up here. My mom's upstairs rubbing shit in her face and my dad's downstairs <laughs> fucking the chicken. <laughs> Hello, welcome to It's a Love Alive podcast. This is a true crime, paranormal, interstellar podcast covering unbelievable stories that sound like they were ripped straight from the pages of a Hollywood script. I'm your host, a man of many names, the outlaw, Harley Ray, the bruiser, Bronson, Dr. H.R. Smokenstein, T.H.C.O. You can call me Josh for short. And with me, as always, is my very own Scream Queen, the perfect combination of beauty and brains, the brightest, Smokenstein, the India, the expert, the guts and gore, the gorgeous, the sexy, Amy Rose. I'm about to pass out. <laughs> yeah. <Breathe. laughs> So how was your week, pretty lady? Good. I think we had a nice relaxing week. I think everybody on our socials saw our week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've been working hard on that social shit, all right. I, I'm kind of enjoying it. I mean, like, you know, I've kind of generally been the lurker mm. when it comes to social media. I've had two social media accounts. Yeah. I have my Facebook account, my Reddit account. Yeah. And I do not interact in either of them. I just, you know, check the news uh. and see what people are bitching about. But, I mean, you know, I think as well, it's different now because I've started looking up so much to do with this that my algorithm is nothing but true crime and horror and, and you know, stuff that I'm actually interested in. Yeah. yeah. So it's easier to get into conversations with people and talk to people. That and uh, foxes. Foxes. Yes, foxes. I follow one, uh, one or two fox pages no yeah <laughs> it is just literally <laughs> foxes interacting with people and they're, they're just acting like pets you know yeah. getting rubbed and stuff like that but it's nice you know there's gut score cryptids bigfoot 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 more gut score fox getting rubbed 
<laughs> I suppose it's a nice break from the guts Bit of a palate cleanser in the middle <laughs> of all the guts and gore. <laughs> My granddad had a pet fox. Yeah, you were telling me about that. Oh, yeah. I, do, I don't know exactly how he found it or how he got it, but he found it before its eyes opened, basically. I, I think the mother was, you know, he found it when the mother was dead, like, you know. Okay. And then, so Cub's eyes hadn't opened. Do you call it a cub? The fox. The baby fox's eyes hadn't opened. <laughs> and, uh, the fun size uh, fox. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so then when its eyes did open, apparently it's the whole imprinting thing. And then, you know. Is that really? Like, I think so. And then, I always saw it in Tom and Jerry cartoons. Do you know, where, like, the duck would see Jerry and would follow Jerry around everywhere it goes. Well, um, it had to come from somewhere. It must be real. And my granddad had a pet fox afterwards. So, I mean, That's like, there's pictures I'd of my mom with the fox in her arms. I yeah. would love a pet fox. Mm. Apparently, they act more like cats, though. Yeah, I think they're more closely related to cats as well. That's what I've read that yeah. somewhere. Doesn't look like it. I, I always love it when I'm driving to work because it's usually, like, really early in the fucking morning and I'd see them around. But there was, like, two of them just playing on the road one fucking morning. Yeah. That was, like, the summertime. Not as many around at the moment. Do you remember when we went to Dublin last summer? I was standing on the Lewis line, but it was really quiet. We oh, yeah, there, the fox and just strolling off oh, down the road. gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, we were like, is it a fox? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, speaking of foxes, your Instagram is on fire. Awesome pics going up there. And if you want to see why I call her the gorgeous and sexy Amy Rose, then check her out on Instagram. 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 Instagram on <laughs> <and> TikTok. <laughs> at Amy Rose. Dot, or I'm Amy Rose. I, I. Good job. <laughs> you won't be sorry. <laughs> oh, God. And the weather's fucking crazy here, too. Absolutely. I mean, you saw our pictures and we're in the nice, frosty, snowy weather and then the storm last fucking weekend. Yep. And I mean, the fuck that trampoline took off. I had fun. <laughs> I felt like I was a sea. I was like, I felt like I was in Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> yeah. Uh, storm that scene. That we were cursed on dead pirates. <laughs> oh my God, man. When the rope, I was literally, because I was trying to tie it to the, to the fence. Yeah. <laughs> and there's like just rope flying everywhere, dirty rope, water splashing everywhere. I'm Josh giving out the trampoline. The, I'm screaming at you over the wind. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be honest, you were screaming at the trampoline, Josh. But fuck the trampoline. I'm getting sick of this weather, to be honest with you. I mean, for people who don't know, who don't live in Ireland, we have, like, two weeks of sunshine here, two weeks of mild snow and heavy frost, then 48 weeks of wind and rain, and that's no joke or over-exaggeration either. Yeah. Our yeah. back garden's a fucking swamp for fucking 48 fucking weeks out of the year. What is it, Pat Short said? Ireland, it'd be a great little country if you could put a roof on it. Yeah, <laughs> underground heating all over the fucking country. I'm pretty sure people press play to hear us talk about demons and serial killers, though, not to just listen to the two of us bitch about the weather like little old ladies. Fine. You want demons and killers, then here you go. Do you want to know what the... Do you know what the Lazarus Syndrome is? No, but I know Lazarus usually has something to do with bringing the dead back to life. Like the Lazarus pit in Batman, Raz al Ghul uses it, and it's how the second Robin comes back from the dead to become the Red Hood. Yeah, but that's in comic book land. And all the comic book nerds just wet their pants when you said all that. <laughs> <laughs> the syndrome I'm about to talk about is 100% real-life shit. The Lazarus phenomenon, or the Lazarus syndrome, is defined as a delayed return of spontaneous circulation after CPR has ceased. In other words, patients who are pronounced dead after cardiac arrest experience an impromptu return to cardiac activity. The syndrome is named after Lazarus of Bethany, who, according to the New Testament of the Bible, was brought back to life by Jesus Christ after four days of death. 
Since 1982, when the Lazarus phenomenon was first described in medical literature, there have been at least 38 reported cases. According to the 2007 report by... See, this is... I, I was writing the script and reading this, and I saw this fucker's name come up, and I'm just like, just one week, just one week, give me a name, just give me a show where all Dr. the names v, are easy. Dr. V, you could call him. Is he a doctor? Um, I don't report by Vida Murti... Adi Heyman <laughs> and colleagues in around 82% of Lazarus syndrome cases to date. Return of spontaneous circulation occurred within 10 minutes of CPR being stopped and around 45% of patients experienced good neurologi neurological recovery. Okay. But while a low number of reported cases might highlight the rarity of the Lazarus syndrome, scientists believe that it is much more common than studies suggest. The Lazarus phenomenon is grossly underreported. Notes, mm, oh, Max, the <laughs> focal surgeon, Doctor Vyabaf Sahani, in the 2016 report. Fuck me, we should You're just call this that we can't names pronounce names before you Fucking hell. Basically, what they're saying here is the reason it's more common than you think, but the reason it is underreported is because it will bring the doctor's abilities into question. So basically, if patients kept, if it kept being reported the patients were fucking dying and then coming back to life 10 minutes later, it'd be like, well, how good of a doctor are you? <laughs> you know, you're pronouncing this guy dead. And they're saying that like this Lazarus syndrome, when it comes to how it happens, yeah. what the phenomenon is, some of the theories are that like a researchers suggest that the Lazarus phenomenon might may be down to a pressure buildup in the chest caused by CPR. So once CPR is ceased, this pressure may gradually release mm -hmm. and kickstart the heart back into action. Another theory is delayed action of medication used as part of the resuscitation efforts, such as adrenaline. It is possible that drugs injected through the peripheral vein are inadequately delivered centrally due to impaired venous return. And when venous return improves after stopping the dynamic hyperinflation, delivery of drugs could contribute to return of circulation. As Ben Franklin once said, in this world, nothing is certain but death and taxes. In a clinical setting, however, a declaration of death is not as certain as one might think. In 2014 came a report of an eight-year-old woman who had been frozen alive in a hospital morgue after being wrongly pronounced dead. In the same year, a New York hospital came under fire after incorrectly declaring a woman as brain dead following a drug overdose. The woman awoke shortly after being taken to the operating room for organ that harvesting. That is a fucking horror story. <laughs> <and stuff. Case>. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's... I would happily... What if you didn't wake up in time and you're there with two fucking... But this is what I'm saying. I would happily donate my organs to death. No problem. But I need you to make sure. <laughs> I feel like it'd be very simple to place a mirror <laughs> under their nose. But the thing is... Uh, is, yeah, is it, well, is it that gets brain dead. Yeah, I don't, yeah, that one's a weird one. But uh, anyway, cases such as this beg to question how is it even possible to mistake mistakenly declare a person that dead i'm just looking it up here and there are two types of death clinical death and biological death so clinical death is defined as the absolute absence of a pulse heartbeat and breathing while biological death is defined as the absence of brain activity so obviously there is the answer to my question yeah well you better make sure i'm fucking both types before they throw me in the oven 
do you have to be you have to be obviously clinically dead not just as in like if if you're biologically dead they come in and say well you need to sign papers so we can make them clinically dead yeah oh, i have no fucking idea not a clue i just thought you were pronounced dead by the doctor and that's it it's over it's done i would assume you have to be clinically dead and if it's if it's biologically dead you're kept you've kept on the life support machine no you know we'll have to ask a doctor <laughs> That is actually interesting, but what does this have to do with Pazuzu and today's story? We're about to get into that now with Pazuzu Part 2 and the Gemini Killer Possession. Hey, you. Yeah, you. You like the podcast? Want some more? Then head on over to our Patreon page where for just five euro a month you get up to 12 extra shows in that month. Along with piles of mini-sodes covering fun facts from the world of horror and true crime. Each week we drop multiple shows such as Real Monsters where we look at the inspiration behind the movie killers or Behind the Mask where we take a look at the influential people and happenings in the world of Hollywood. All this plus movie reviews, watch-alongs and regular AMAs. That means ask me anything. You really do get a bang for your buck. And and by bang I mean like podcast. I'm not soliciting or anything. Shit. Um, Moving on. For just five euro a month, all this could be yours. So head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash IAA pod. That's www.patreon.com forward slash IAA pod and start listening now. So we left off last week with the demon Pazuzu being ripped from the body of the young Regan McNeil, only to take up temporary residence deep in the soul of father Damien Karras, who then in turn threw himself from the child's bedroom window to his death, or at least that's how it seemed at the time. Yeah, we kind of left Karras lying on the side of the road with father Dyer giving him his last rites. Didn't he say Karras died with a smile on his face, like he was happy knowing he had accomplished, going knowing that he accomplished his mission and restored his faith? That's a nice way to go from, I suppose, considering what he'd been through. Yeah, it would be a suitable bookend to his story, considering his loss of and return to his fate. But thing is, a bookend does exactly what the word implies. It marks the end of the book, or the end of the story. Karras may have been dead at the end of our episode last week, but the thing is, he didn't stay that way, and his story was far from over yet. In fact, it wouldn't end for at least another 15 years and would go unnoticed to all close to him in all that time as well. So I assume this is the reason we got the lecture on the Lazarus Syndrome at the start of the episode then. Exactly. Because you see, on May 15, 1971, Father Damien Karras was officially pronounced dead not long after arriving at Georgetown University Hospital. He was buried in a Jesuit cemetery in Georgetown and life went on. At least, that's the official story. What's the unofficial story? We'll get to that, but first we need to lay out a bit more background story. I don't want to spoil any twists in the tale just yet. What if you just tell me? <laughs> so as I said, life went on and with time stories of the possession of Regan McNeil, daughter of Hollywood actors Howard and Chris McNeil, dwindled in the media and the story became an urban legend in Hollywood, mostly forgotten until the release of Chris's book, A Mother's Explanation from Possession to Now, that came out in the early 90s, a book which would cause the estrangement of her and her daughter Regan, who needless to say was not thrilled to have the whole ordeal brought back back into the spotlight and back into public consciousness. It took Chris's blinding at the hands of another allegedly possessed girl to reunite the mother and daughter only last year after decades apart. Pity it took that to get them back together, but better late than ever. Yep. 
Anyway, as life went on in the memory of Father Merrin and Karras faded into the church history books, two men who were directly involved in the events of the exorcism in 1971 couldn't help but remember and mark the passing of Father Karras with an annual cinema and dinner date. Those two men being Father Joseph Dyer and Lieutenant William F. Kinderman. Aw, dinner and a date. Who's expecting who to put out here? suppose it depends on who's paying, doesn't it? <laughs> but, but my bet is the priest is the little spoon in the relationship. <laughs> Enough jokes, though. This was a genuine nice thing they did annually to mark the passing of their friend and fellow movie buff, Father Damien Karras. They'd go see a classic film, then have dinner where they would discuss the movie and share memories of their fallen friend, Karras. Funny little sidebar here. They both used to tell people that they went on these annual dates for the other's benefit. Kinderman telling his wife that he had to go cheer up Dyer because, you know, Dyer was feeling bad about Karras' death. And Dyer telling friends he met with Kinderman to help him deal with the memory of Damien's death. So really, they're leaning on each other for support. Yeah, but they're two old school men from, you know, a time when men had only four emotions. Happy, mm. angry, hungry, horny. So <laughs> neither would ever admit to being in a codependent situation yeah. like that. The last date they had was on the 15th anniversary of Damien's passing. They went to see It's a Wonderful Life, followed by dinner at a restaurant in Georgetown. This time, they didn't just discuss the movie and memories. You see, Kinderman had a lot in his mind and had some questions of fate to discuss with Father Dyer. Kinderman, still working in Washington PD Homicide Department, had been hot on the trail of a copycat killer. The killer who, by the time of this date, was two bodies in. He was copying the MO and style of the believed deceased Gemini killer James Veneman. Veneman, who was active from 1969 to 1971, began his killing spree in the Bay Area before moving it to Washington, then back to San Francisco, the site of his eventual demise. People of San Fran must fucking hate astrology. Right, they have the Zodiac Killer in, what, 68, 69? Then the Gemini Killer in 1971. Unless they're hardly the same person. No, but it was all similar enough that the cops checked DNA samples they had from stamps licked by the Zodiac and stamps licked by Veneman to see if they matched. And uh, they also had like vigorous handwriting analysis done on letters sent to the media. Like Both guys basically did the fucking same shit. So yeah. they reckon Veneman was... A bit of a fanboy. Okay. <laughs> uh, saying that he probably deserves more attention in the real Zodiac. Mm. Not that any murder outdoes another, but the results of their murders is the difference between walking into a crime scene set by Tony Soprano or the set by Art the Clown. <laughs> so, whereas their name and love for interacting with media made them similar, their vision of how their killing spree would play out and the underlying motivation for murdering in the first place were very, very different. See, the Zodiac was a control freak with terrorist tendencies. His motives were to prove his superiority, get attention, control the investigation, create a terroristic climate, and relive the crimes via media reports. His background and possible upbringing or any early signs or personality traits that the Zodiac may have had is completely unknown because, as we all know, the Zodiac was never caught, and his identity remains a mystery to this day. But on the off chance that someone living under a rock in the middle of a rainforest doesn't know, the Zodiac Killer is the pseudonym of an unidentified serial killer who operated in Northern California in the late 1960s. The case has been described as the most famous unsolved murder case in American history and has become both a fixture of popular culture and a focus for efforts by amateur detectives. 
The Zodiac murdered five known victims in the San Francisco Bay Area between December 1968 and October 1969, operating in rural, urban and suburban settings. He targeted young couples and a lone male cab driver. His known attacks took place in Benicia. Yeah. Yeah. Vallejo. Vallejo, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Unincorporated Napa County and the city of San Francisco proper. Two of his wounded victims survived. The Zodiac is also claimed to have murdered 37 victims. He has been linked to several other cold cases, some in Southern California or outside the state. The Zodiac coined his name in a series of taunting messages that he mailed to regional newspapers in which he threatened killing sprees and bombings if they were not printed. Some of the letters included cryptograms or ciphers in which the killer claimed that he was collecting his victims as slaves for the afterlife. Of the four ciphers he produced, two remain unsolved and one was only cracked in 2020. While many theories regarding the identity of the killer have been suggested, the only suspect authorities ever publicly named was Arthur Lee Allen, a former elementary school teacher and convicted sex offender who died in 1992. In his book Zodiac, author Gray Smith advanced Arthur Lee Allen, who died in 1992, as a potential suspect based on circumstantial evidence. Allen had been interviewed by police from the early days of the Zodiac investigations and was the subject of several search warrants over a 20-year period. In 2007, Grace Smith noted that several detectives described Allen as the most likely suspect. In 2010, David Toshi stated that all the evidence against Allen ultimately turned out to be negative. Toshi's daughter said in 2018 that her father had always thought Allen had been the killer, but they did not have the evidence to prove it. On October 6, 1969, Allen was interviewed by Detective John Lynch of the Vallejo Police Department. Allen had been reported in the vicinity of the Lake Berryessa mm-hmm. attack on September 27, 1969. He described himself scuba diving at Salt Point on the days of the attacks. It's a great alibi. Yeah. Allen again came to police attention in 1971 when his friend Donald Cheney reported to police in Manhattan Beach that Allen had spoken of his desire to kill people, used the name Zodiac and secured a flashlight to his firearm for visibility at night. According to Cheney, this this conversation occurred no later than January 1st, 1969. Now, I remember hearing about this as well. And he'd start going on about how, um, wasn't there a book like the word of the... Man is the greatest game and yeah, all that, the yeah. hunting and all that shit. Yeah. He used to be going on about that book and talking about it as well. Okay. So that led to his suspicion also. Okay. The Zodiac shit. So Jack Molinax of the Vallejo Police Department subsequently wrote that Allen had received a dishonorable discharge from the United States Navy in 1958 and had been fired from his teaching job in March 1968 after allegations of sexual misconduct with students. He was generally well regarded by those who knew him, but he was also described as fixated on young children and angry at women. That is like the polar fucking opposite of each other. Yeah. He's a pedo but he's harmless <laughs> Do you know yeah. ah, he's got this fucking rage against women but ah sure he's a nice guy yeah. <laughs> fucking weird one so regardless of whether he was the Zodiac or not still a bit of a prick yep Alan was interviewed by the police in 1971 Zodiac would not write again until 1974 in September 1972, the SFPD obtained a search warrant for Allen's residence. In 1974, Allen was arrested for sexually assaulting a 12-year-old boy. 
He pled guilty and served two years imprisonment. 74, so all that shit's over with at that point. Mm. Vallejo police served another search warrant on Allen's residence in February 1991. Two days after Allen's death in 1982, Vallejo police served another warrant and seized property from his residence. In July 1992, victim Mike Magu identified Allen as the man who shot him in 1969 from a photo lineup saying, That's him! It's the man who shot me! However, police officer Donald Fuke, who is is speculated to have seen the Zodiac fleeing from the Stein killing, said in the 2007 documentary, his name was Arthur Arthur Lee Allen, that Allen weighed about 100 pounds more than the man he saw, adding that his face was too round. Nancy Slover, who received a call from the Zodiac in the aftermath of the Magoo Ferrin shooting, said that Allen did not sound like the man on the phone. Now, I would argue there are two things. Mm. one the phone call could have been a prank phone call yeah do you know there are dicks out there who would oh, ring definitely. victims and fucking act a prick yeah and the other thing is the the, the cop who saw someone uh walking away from the the shooting there's nothing to say that was the zodiac it would just happen because what happened was when the when the paul stein was shot the call was put in for mm-hmm. the cops. There was someone saw it or reported. So it was reported anyway. Okay. But they were told that it was a tall African-American man they were looking for. So there was this guy. Do, do you know the, 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 the typical fucking mug shot you see of the, the, the sketch Zodiac. of the Zodiac? Mm-hmm. That is from that cop's description. And oh. that is who they're looking for because of it. Okay. But um, yeah, but that was just he. The cop saw a man walking down the so walking fast down the street away from the the area where the crime and just assumed this must have been. And because he was looking for a tall black man, ignored the small white guy with glasses. Oh you know? shit! Yeah. So that's what they reckon happened. So you know, they reckon they were close to catching him. But no, nothing to say that that guy was the the, the zodiac either. Mm. He could have just been a guy that happened to be walking past at the same fucking oh, time. Oh yeah, yeah. So you, you yeah. don't know there. It's a it's a weird one. Other evidence existed against Allen, albeit extremely circumstantial. A letter sent to the Riverside Police Department from Bates. Killer was typed with a royal typewriter with an elite type. The same brand found during a February 1991 search of Allen's residence. Allen owned and wore a Zodiac brand wristwatch. Uh, he also lived in Vallejo and worked minutes away from one of the Zodiacs, where one of the Zodiac victims resided, and from one where one of the killings took place. Mm. In 2002, the SFPD developed a partial DNA profile from the saliva on the stamp and envelopes of the Zodiac letters. The SFPD compared the partial DNA to that of Allen. A DNA comparison was also made to the DNA of Don Cheney, who was Alan's former close friend and the first person to suggest Alan may be the Zodiac. Since neither test result indicated a match, Alan and Cheney were excluded as the contributors of the DNA. Now, they've also fucking said there that there is a small possibility that if you're a psycho serial killer, you don't... No, they wouldn't have been thinking of DNA back then. But that he could have been getting somebody else to lick the stamps. But if you're not thinking of DNA, why would you do that? So, I don't know. Yeah. And he didn't seem like a 
extremely intelligent man. But that's what I'm saying. As in, I think I've made that point before that if he was dyslexic and had somebody working better. (laughs) Retired police handwriting expert Lloyd Cunningham, who worked on the Zodiac case for decades, stated, they gave me banana boxes full of Alan's writings and none of his writing even came close to the Zodiac. Nor did the DNA extracted from the envelopes come close to Arthur Alan Lee. Although the Zodiac ceased written communications around 1974, the unusual nature of the case led to international interest that has been sustained for over half a century since. The San Francisco Police Department marked the case inactive in April 2004, but reopened it at some point prior to March 2007. The case also remains open in the city of Vallejo, as well as in Napa and Solano counties. The California Department of Justice has maintained an open case file on the Zodiac murders since 1969. Yeah, this case bugs the shit out of me. I'd love to see it solved. Mm. I mean, like, problem is, the more time passes, the less likely they're going to find out. Yeah. I mean, he'll probably go down in history as the next Jack the Ripper. Mm -hmm. Unlike the Zodiac, though, James Veneman was caught, but not before going on a two-year killing spree, in which he also communicated with the media, sending notes, letters, and ciphers in the same vein as his unknowing mentor, the Zodiac. Veneman grew up in a strict evangelical household in Washington, D.C. He was the eldest of two sons. His father was an alcoholic preacher, and his mother died of cancer when he was still very young. I'm sorry, that all seems a little vague, but that really there really isn't a lot of information on this guy's family life. Not a lot in his background. What we do know is after the death of his mother, his father became abusive, often beating the two boys in a drunken rage. James taking the brunt of the abuse in a bid to defend his younger brother from the violence. According to reports from the time when James was around 14, he returned home home from school to find his brother lying in a heap at the end of the stairs. His father claimed the boy slipped and fell, but bruising and wounds on the boy were inconsistent with that of a fall. But with no hard evidence to work with and forensics not being what they are today, no charges were brought against Mr. Veneman and the death was ruled accidental. This enraged James and would later become one of the motives to his murders, killing in blasphemous ways in order to shame his God-fearing preacher father. Veneman would go on to take 19 lives, leaving only two survivors from his attack. So Veneman was born sometime in 1971, making him the same age as Caris, who was born that same year. His brother died in 1950, and his killing spree began 19 years later in 1969. If he was so enraged at his brother's death and his abusive father's behaviour, why did it take him so long for him to fully snap? Like, 19 years is a long time to hold on to that kind of rage. No one really knows. Maybe he was just trying to work up the nerve, but that seems unlikely considering the brutality of his crimes later. He doesn't seem, you know, he doesn't come across as a guy who had issue with nerves when it came to murder. Mm -hmm. What we do know is that over that time, Veneman became obsessed with serial killers and true crime magazines, holding multiple subscriptions and spending a lot of his time alone in his room reading and learning from his peers' mistakes. I wonder can people hear that rain beating off our windows right now? Fucking hell. They're giving thunder. (laughs) Oh, that'd be creepy. Adding atmosphere to the story, is what it is. See, Veneman loved the killer stories, but hated that the bad guy almost always got caught. That's what made the Zodiac Killer so compelling to him. Still active at the time, Veneman was glued to the news and paper for daily updates on the case. That's a red flag. What? Oh, the true crime. But see, that's how I came across true crime for the first time. 
I remember, like, just oh, I, for some reason, it was kept in a box in the um, hot press. And in our second, I was about 13, when we, 12, 13 when we moved into that house. But the hot press, the way it was, you could open it from a hatch in the hallway. Mm. But the main door, the main wardrobe door was in my bedroom. Mm. And it was like a box under, at the bottom of it, you know, just slid in underneath. And I opened it up one day and I found all these true crime magazines. I assumed they were my dad's. Mm. But um, that's how I first read about fucking Fred and Rosemary West. Ooh, and Dennis I Nielsen. I like that one. Or that one. Yeah, yeah. I read that fucking 13 years of age sitting in my bedroom reading these magazines. I was just like, this is fucking amazing. I, I was just obsessed with true yeah. crime. And it's funny, it's, it kind of went dormant for years. I just forget about it because, you know, I got into metal and I was writing dark metal got songs and shit. <laughs> but in the meantime, like, you know, when I came back to you, you saw there, there was a period of time where I was just fucking stuck to Reddit, mm. constantly reading about serial killers. Yeah, well, it is interesting. It just got to the point where I had literally read all of their stories. No, obviously, doing mini monsters and stuff, I come across a lot more Mm -hmm. guys now. Yeah. But, I mean, the big name guys, Albert Fish, fucking, you know, fucking, all just damn our fucking Mm -hmm. needs and all them. I've read their story so many fucking times. No, I mean, I mean, we've done a few episodes of Real Monsters where you're like, are you doing a script for this one? It's like, I don't fucking need a script for this one. I know (laughs) this guy. Yeah. I fucking read this guy's story a million times. BTK was a fucking fine example of that. Mm. You know, I knew that guy's story inside out. I did not need it written down in front yeah, of me. Yeah, in fairness. Now, the Zodiac was known for taking a few months of a cooling off period between murders. So what triggered Venom to strike so soon after the Zodiac's last confirmed murder is a mystery. At this point, all evidence just points to coincidence but after his identification dna from stamps from venomans letters to the media were compared to the zodiacs and it did not come back a match so 100 percent venoman was not the zodiac even though it seems like he just kind of picked off right where the zodiac left off not unless he got different people to lick, lick the stamps for him you know yeah <laughs> but again like i said earlier i think i was saying to you, why would you even think about that at the time when dna wasn't a thing you know, in the yeah. 70s, you're not thinking DNA. You're not worried. I mean, that's how BTK got caught. He didn't think spunking all over that fucking... Ugh, that child was going yeah. to get him fucking caught. And that was his very first fucking know, murder. And I that's, you know, yeah. that DNA uh-huh. that he left behind is what got him nabbed in the end. But mm-hmm. he wasn't thinking at the time because it wasn't, it wasn't a thing, thing. you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, unless you invent it, you're not going to fucking know it's it coming. It wasn't even very um, rely- seen as reliable in the OJ case, was that? Ah. Uh-huh. In the OJ Simpson case. But that's the thing. Yeah. With the O.J. Simpson case, it was one of the first times it was being brought to court. Yeah. So, whereas we know that that evidence would have convicted him in this day and age, mm-hmm. it was so new and so confusing. It like magic to the jury or that something. That the jury, it was too hard for the jury yeah. to comprehend. And the fucking defense knew that, so they just went straight in and it was like fucking... Let's just confuse them. <laughs> That's you know? where the prosecution should have given, like, may, did they give background to the DNA? But the prosecution knew, understood the DNA, so they were certain they had him. It was like, well, he's caught because I have, we have it. It's DNA evidence. Oh, I know this what you mean. This cannot be unproven. Well, what but, I'm wondering is, did they present the DNA with a background of, okay, this is what DNA is, this is how we break it down, or was they, they like, oh, his DNA matches, so... They kind of, I don't know, they did bring in a specialist, but okay. it was a case to of a game that like. the specialist was speaking in his specialist doctor language okay. and the fucking 
normal, regular ass Joe Soap sitting on the the jury didn't understand what he was saying. And then his defense came in with, um, I think there was some problem with the blood that was tested, had some sort of substance in it that basically stopped it from um, clotting. And so the defense started to kind of play up on that, that this was put there by the police. Like anticoagulants. Yeah. yeah, so they were saying it was kept fresh with this chemical to put be put there by the police to frame OJ, which confused matters even fucking more. Like you know, that was basically what happened there. Could it just OJ be somebody who was taking anticoagulants? No? Huh? I, I don't know if they were based. No, but they could prove that he wasn't. Oh yeah, I suppose. But it was just it, everything with the OJ Simpson case was just confused the jury. Yeah, I mean, even down to the if glove. the glove doesn't quit, OJ was told about a couple of days beforehand to hold his hand no stop taking your fucking uh, oh your, um, your medication your arthritis medication yeah so his hands swelled up and he couldn't fit the glove on so it couldn't have been him but if he had been taking his arthritis medication that glove would have slipped right on so that's why he's holding his hand weird because i remember seeing that footage going how does nobody else here but see that he's holding his hand fucking gloves, weird like, do you know yeah. this thing yeah and, i mean on top of that like the shoe print the shoe he was wearing was a really fucking upmarket shoe, really expensive mm. shoe. And there was a, it was like a you know, very select few people that would own a pair of these fucking shoes. Yeah. And they were found, there was an imprint of them found on the fucking scene of the crime. He is on video, he claimed he didn't have these shoes at one point, but he was on, caught off guard because he's a fucking, you know, he's on TV doing football game fucking pundits and all that's on the sideline. He was seen wearing the fucking shoes on television. Like. Yeah. So he was like, he was caught there. And then, if that wasn't bad enough, he went away and wrote a fucking book saying, if I did it. This <laughs> is how I would do it, but I'm not saying I did it, confessing. but if I did. <laughs> but again, if he's confessing, he's kind of confessing to having an accomplice, which kind of the fits. Son? Well, that is the theory. And again, I assume. Alive? Why do I have it in my head? Mm-hmm, he I think he is. Actually, I don't know. No, he's mentioned it. That sounds like a... But again, look, OJ is something that we will 100% be digging deep into Unreal Monsters at some stage. But it does bring up the good case of the uh, accomplice theory that you're talking about. Because maybe this situation with the Zodiac was like the jigsaw killer, John Kramer. He had multiple apprentices and they all continued on his work after his death. Maybe the Gemini killer was a student of the Zodiac. And when the Zodiac died, Venomance just simply took his place. Okay. Unfortunately, we don't know the identity of the Zodiac, and Veneman is officially on record as being dead, despite his body never being recovered. Regardless of the reasoning behind it, on Halloween night 1969, Veneman stalked the former Lover's Lane and first sight of the confirmed Zodiac murder, Lake Herman Road. Maybe to pay homage to his master, or maybe as an idiot fanboy replaying a scene he had read about and played out in his head time and time again. Sounds like Danny Rowling going to Florida to try to replicate Bundy's killing spree. Remember we covered him on our very first episode of Real Monsters on Patreon. And he was another fanboy loser. Exactly. But unlike in 1968 when it was a lover's lane, the no sight of the grisly murder of high school students Betty Lou Jensen and David Otter Faraday was more of a spooky haunted site to the youth of San Francisco. Kids often went there and dared each other to go down the lane playing chicken with each other, seeing who had the balls to go the furthest. Yeah, like you would with an abandoned house. Right, kids instantly associated an empty house with a haunted house. Uh, like they do outside here. Yeah, okay. literally. Yeah. There's some people moved out of this one house. Do you know what's fucked up, right? There's like a house there and the people moved out of there and no one moved back in. Yeah. And the kids call that the haunted house. Mm-hmm. Like 
two it's years crazy. ago, the house next door literally had someone die. Like there was, we woke up one morning and there was cops outside. The, windows, the windows were wide open. open. I was like, somebody's dead. You were like, nah. And and then it, like we find out that and what fucked up was we find out this played out over a couple of days mm-hmm. in our fucking estate and we didn't know what was happening. Yeah, I remember we were inside in the sitting room watching fucking Space Jam on a Sunday, a little mm-hmm. hungover with the kids. And I think it was Space Jam 2, our first yeah, time watching yeah, it. Yeah, And apparently, at the same time, outside our front garden, or not our front garden, but in the park in our front yard, uh, this guy was dragging his fucking girlfriend around and kicking the shit out of her in front of everybody. And there was a cop Wasn't that lived that in our bad? estate. Who, yeah, who came out and pulled the fucking guy off him. And there was all the screaming and roaring outside, and we didn't hear a fucking thing. Because we had Space Jam. And then fucking out. two days later, this woman ends up fucking dead. And your man, I think, did they catch him on his way to England or something? Did they? Oh, I didn't know that now. And, uh, news to me. He was he, he was arrested and another guy was arrested. And they said they were doing an inquiry into it. I haven't heard. And there has been nothing, nothing about it since. And I have looked it up multiple times. I can't even find the but original Josh, article. Maybe it was about natural causes thing. in the end. But I can't even find the original article about the thing. No, yeah, there was apparently a big pasta, drug pass there, and, and, and there was drugs. It, it was a drug fucking problem that was causing yeah. all the shit that was going on outside yeah. there. But it's just fucking, you know, it was just crazy. Like, But it's crazy that that didn't become the haunted house. Yeah, you know? it's the one next door. <laughs> and again, I think like nobody's lived there. I think somebody moved in there and moved out within a couple of fucking weeks again, and it's been yeah, empty since. Yeah, they like, did, actually. They, they, the council have it, and, they mm. try, and it got so bad that they tried to make it a fucking halfway house. And the mothers of this estate came around with their petition. And I signed it. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm not against a halfway house, but I just don't think this was the right location for it. I think a halfway house in terms of it's a very good, it's a very good location for a family. If it was in a homeless family. There's know, too many kids here yeah. and it would, depend, it, would, it would almost be like, it would, it would defeat the purpose of the halfway house because you'd have to fucking vet everyone that was about yeah. to go into the halfway house before they're going yeah. into it because you don't, and I hate saying that because, you know, they deserve a second chance. Absolutely, most, absolutely, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. But at the same time, I understood why it was like, uh, there's a school literally right fucking next to us see, and yeah. there's a bunch of kids in this estate maybe this isn't and we're and, and we're, people eat a side that has a the area yeah. you know as well so if there's a problem we're very fucking confined here and there's nobody watching over us we got one cop who yeah. does not work weekends <laughs> you know <laughs> it's like fucking i barely see this guy around like you know and uh, oh, so, i see him around so if we had a problem like the cops that are coming are about a good 20 minutes away Hmm. Uh, so I don't know. I I don't know. I feel bad saying that too because I understand I again the how people get here faster than the ambulance. I have no idea. Yeah, you would have to wait twice, was it like a good fucking half an hour or more? In Valencia, they would wait a few hours. Look at that one. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we said the same thing about Michael Myers' house in our Michael Myers series from around Halloween last year about the the haunted house. Yep. And this activity has never been more active than it was on Halloween night. Ooh, a spooky season. Perfect time for games like this. You think so, but with Venomin uh, stalking the area, looking to not just copy his mentor, but outdo him, this meant only bad things for the kids fucking around the area. The kids in question were 14-year-olds Lee Miller and Jason Cobb, as they both edged their way down the site of the murder with, from less than one year earlier. Venomin came out of the brush and up from behind them. He shot Miller a point-blank range, but Cobb, being a star athlete fresh into high school, heard the shot and bolted for the woods. Venomin took 
took another shot but only managed to wing the boy's shoulder. By the time he could get to a phone and alert police, Veneman was gone, leaving only the body of Lee Miller, sitting right where the car of Betty Lee Jensen and David Arthur Faraday had sat only 10 months earlier. His body posed with his hands laid out in front of him. On his right hand, his index finger had been removed. On his left, the symbol of the Gemini had been carved into the boy's palm. So he really went beyond the original Zodiac attack. Right, the first murders widely attributed to the Zodiac were, as you said, the shootings of high school students Betty Lou Jensen and David Arthur Faraday on December 20th, 1968. The double murder occurred on Lake Herman Road, just inside the city limits of Benicia. Am I saying that properly? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Good. It's as good as I do. (laughs) (laughs) The couple were on their first date and planned to attend a Christmas concert at Hogan High School, about three blocks from the Jensen's home. They visited a friend before stopping at a local restaurant and driving out on Lake Herman Road, a popular area for young couples. At about 10.15pm, Faraday parked his mother's rambler in a gravel turnout, which was a well-known lover's name. Shortly after 11pm, their bodies were found by Stella Borges, who lived nearby. The Solano County Sheriff's Department investigated the crime, but no leads developed. Using available forensic data, Arthur... Arthur... Author Robert Graysmith later speculated that another car pulled into the turnout just prior to 11 p.m. and parked beside the couple. The killer may have exited the second car and walked towards the Rambler, possibly ordering the couple out of it. It appeared that Jensen had exited the car first, but when Faraday was halfway out, the killer shot him in the head. The killer then shot Jensen five times in the back as she fled and her body was found 28 feet from the car. The killer immediately drove away from the scene. Yeah, so Veneman was upping the ante by mutilating and posing the bodies, and he wasn't done just yet. Because perhaps he really was going to that location to replay his mentor's first crime, and disappointed with executing the wrong type of victim, Veneman decided to try again. The same night. Like, that's some Richie Ramirez style shit. Richie? You on a first name basis with Ramirez, no? Yep. Boys and boys, and apparently... All of us women are mad about him. <laughs> yeah, he used to get fucking mad. Like, there would be women in the fucking, like, audience of his court I cases. don't understand that one. I don't understand any, but that one in particular. That We've was... had this conversation before on the podcast, I'm pretty fucking sure. Yeah. He comes up fairly often as someone that women were crazy about. And was it was like, just... especially when, like, most women described him as smelling of wet leather and he's fucking Brett was supposed to be what awful from wet... halitosis. Ooh, what does wet, wet leather smell like, though? It's not play um, I don't I think I've ever smelled flat leather. Yeah, I suppose it's kinda like do you know when you do, do you ever spy like past like a tan a, a tannerous kind of fucking place? Do you yeah. know where it's sell belts and stuff like that? They I suppose it's like that leather I suppose it's just that leathery smell but really strong. Oh the one in Shrio smells like nail varnish remover, that's why I like passing that. Yeah? Yeah, so I don't know see what's he doing with that. Is that that's not there anymore, is it? It is. Is it? Yeah, it's beside the little uh is it a call machine or whatever? Yeah, that's where it was, yeah. yeah that's Across the way from where Abracababra used to be. It's a lot of that now when I go through town. It's where that used to be. It's where I that used that, to be. Is that gone completely now? Oh, yeah. We Everywhere. Don't have, we don't have an Abracababra. No, no, we just don't have an Abracababra in Chile anymore. We, that's a business opening. Huh? Not really, because it had to close down because it wasn't doing good business. I haven't tried it in the village before. <laughs> <laughs> 
Anyway, less than two hours after murdering Lee Miller, Veneman murdered couple Brad Blair and Linda Dorff, this time going literal with the location, choosing Lover's Lane, Trail and Park. Finding the couple in the car park, Veneman again shot the couple at close range, killing them both almost instantly, again taking their right index fingers and marking their left palm with the sign of the Gemini. This is where he starts to communicate with the media. Wasting no time after the October 31st killings, the San Francisco Chronicle received his first letter on November the 2nd. In it, Veneman, going under the Gemini pseudonym, claimed responsibility for the three deaths of Halloween night. In the letter, he claimed to be, and I quote, the successor of the great Zodiac Master. This is what led investigators to believe he could be a Zodiac accomplice and that there was a possibility that the real Zodiac was dead. They also played with the idea that Veneman was the Zodiac, just changing MO and name to cause confusion to the investigation. So there is a theory, right? And it mm-hmm. kind of comes back to what I was saying earlier about the Zodiac. And mm-hmm. that's the multiple Zodiac theory. I don't fully know where it comes from, but there is a, a documentary out there at the moment. Came out maybe last year, I think. Okay. And it plays on the idea that it is almost like a Charles Manson-like cult thing. Where this cult was, this Zodiac cult was um, responsible. So they were working in conjunct, like as in mm. like the like a big group. Because the cop that saw your man didn't match up with the description of Arthur Allen Lee, who they were really fucking suspecting of it. Like even with the, the even to this day, with the DNA going against it and handwriting going against it, they still one hundred percent believe he's the, he's the most likely person. Um, there's also the case of this woman who has come out and uh, she's actually the subject of that documentary as far as I know and she do you know the day the scene in the Zodiac movie the one that I feel really uncomfortable with or the park scene the, where oh, the yeah, yeah, yeah. stabs him and I, that really fucking creeps me out yeah there, uh, a woman said that he was actually at the park watching them for 40 hiding behind a tree watching them for about 40 minutes her and her mm. friends and uh, that they just pretended he wasn't there so because, you know, kind of as a way of maybe if we don't pay attention to him, he won't come over. But that he was peeking out at them from behind the tree for like 40 fucking minutes. That's it creepy. Shit out of me. Very creepy. I, Why did they just fuck off? I sent a chill on my fucking spine. I, I could, I could, yeah, I'd have to leave or I'd have to approach him. Oh, you know, no, I'd I have leave. to fucking be like, what the fuck yeah. is your problem, man? Well, what the fuck are you doing? Like, you mm-hmm. know, you're creeping us out. Yeah. But I think, yeah, most likely... I'd leave. Yeah. And probably would be the better idea considering the guy would have a gun and a yep. fucking knife on him. And it's America. But she said he didn't match what um, what the description looked like either. And then I've seen another description, and the only way I can describe it is it looks like, to go back to Good Times again, like we did last episode, uh-huh. it looks like James from Good Times, the dad from Good Times, but he's oh, really yeah. fat. It looks like fucking what, what Cleveland Brown from fucking um, <laughs> Family Guy would look like yeah, in real life. Yeah. And... Uh, he looks like the dude from the office, the cranky dude. Oh, that, yeah. That put, that's exactly what that fucking mugshot looks like. I like him. Like. So, I mean, there's like all these different fucking, and they say the varying styles of murder, mm. the varying types of victims. Um, I mean, the fact that with the last one, Paul Stein, that was the only one where he took a trophy. Okay. He ripped off a bit of, a bit of his um, bloody shirt and took it with him. Ooh, the way you're pointing, I thought you were going to say nipple. No, like, no, 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 no. Just no, said no. there was a blood soak. You know, he's shot with blood soak and yeah. he shot and he just ripped off a piece and took it with him. So, I mean, there's this theory that there was a Zodiac cult as opposed to an one actual one Zodiac, person. Okay. You know? 
So obviously at this stage, Sam Fran ha- was in a panic. I've already pointed out Zodiac was known for taking a few months of a break between each killing, and it had only been a few weeks since Zodiac had killed cab driver Paulie Stein. So at this point, no one knew they had seen the last of the Zodiac with that murder. As far as all involved were concerned, there were now two serial killers with similar MOs on loose in the Bay Area. So needless to say, policing and security was massively boosted in the city, forcing Veneman to take his show on the road, traveling the Golden State, killing 12 more women as he went, his MO evolving and changing with each body dropped. Going back to old Richie again, the Night Stalker was known for his random attacks and for constantly changing weapons and methods of murder. The Gemini Killer became known for murdering his victims in conjunction with astrological events, such as the Winter Solstice, Equinox, and the one that bugs the shit out of Amy Friday the 13th. It makes no sense, I know. It doesn't make any sense. It makes them unreliable. (laughs) I'd love to give these women the recognition they deserve, but due to the volume of the dead here and the relevance of his later killings and time being a factor, I'm just going to give you a quick rundown of the first round of California victims attributed to Veneman, a.k.a. the Gemini Killer, a.k.a. the Astrological Murderer. First. The Gemini Killer is much better sounding than the Astrological Murderer. <laughs> <laughs> well, first round implying that he stopped and started again. Like well, He killed Lee Miller, Brad Blair and Linda Dorff in the same way the Zodiac killed his victims. Then seemed to want to experiment with his own style and killed nine more women over a 12 month period. He got pulled in for a few interviews in relation to the case. He had a small link to Linda Dorff whose family attended his father's church. Everyone was being looked into. Anyone with a connection at all, even Veneman's father for being the family's preacher. It was through that interview that they discovered that James was a true crime serial killer fanboy and called Called him in for a chat. Freaked out, Veneman left the state and travelled across the country to Georgetown, Washington, putting an end to the first round of killings mm-hmm. in California. Okay, it's honesty time. We have a confession to make. We suck at socials. No good at Insta. Can't send a tweet or an X or whatever that super villain looking motherfucker is calling it now. Stick to your space cars, Elon. But we know. You want to chat. You want to be kept updated. You want to be alive, alive all the goddamn time. So we're getting down from the antisocial soapbox and giving this a try. So come chat to us on Insta and Twitter at Alive Alive Pod or hit us up by email at it's alive alive pod at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. This is a project. It's still a work in progress and we just want to give you more what you like and less of what you can't stand. So give us a like, give us a follow. We'll always hit you back and we'll always always try to reply to everyone so come say hi we don't bite well at least amy doesn't and she keeps me well fed so you got nothing to worry about now back to the show <laughs> so you were about to give us a rundown of veneman's first round of california killings i hate listening to these details yeah it's not a pleasant read to be honest First up was Elaine Louise Davis, age 17, who disappeared on December 1st, 1969 from her home in Walnut Creek, California. On December 19th, the body of the young woman eventually identified as Davis after an exhumation in 2000 was discovered floating off Lighthouse Point near Santa Cruz. Leona Laurel Roberts, age 16, whose nude body was found 10 days before the winter solstice on the beach of Bolinus Lagoon in Marine County on December 28, 1969. She had been kidnapped from her boyfriend's home on December 10th. Her death was treated as a homicide, although the official cause was listed as exposure by the medical examiner. 
Cassette Ann Ellison, age 15, whose nude body was found in a ravine 17 days before the vernal equinox. The cause of her death was undetermined. She had been abducted on March 3rd, 1970 from her residence in Moraga, 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 California, as she got off the school bus at 3.20 p.m. Patricia Ann King, aged 20, was found strangled and discarded in a rural gully at Diablo Valley College. She was nude from the waist down, but she had not been raped. Judith Ann Hakari, aged 23, was last seen leaving work at Sutter Medical Center in Sacramento at 11.30 p.m. on March 7, 1970, 13 days before the equinox she was discovered nude and bludgeoned in an overgrown ravine off ponderosa way near weimar in april 26th marie antoinette anstey aged 23 who was kidnapped in vallejo after being stunned by a blow to the head and then drowned her body was recovered in rural lake county on march 21st and an autopsy revealed traces of mescaline in her bloodstream during the equinox on march 20 1970 17 year old eva lucine blue was found clubbed to death and dumped in a roadside gully near Santa Rosa. The medical examiner discovered drugs in her circulatory system. She was last seen on March 12th, leaving Jack London Hall after telling friends she was heading home. Carol Beth Hilburn, age 22, was found beaten to death in a ravine on November 13th, 1970. She was last seen at Lloyd Hickey's 40 Grand Club in Sacramento on November 14th at approximately 5 a.m. Hilburn had been stripped of her clothes except for her underwear and was found which was found on her knees. She had been beaten about the face and had a deep cut in her throat. Denise Kathleen Anderson, aged twenty-two, who disappeared on December 13, 1970, having been last seen by one of her roommates at 5:30 a.m. at their residence in Sacramento at the time she was expressed she had expressed fear of a man she believed to be stalking her. Her description of the man matches Veneman. She has not been seen since. In all the cases, the murders could be linked to Veneman due to the missing index finger on the right hand of the Gemini symbol carved into the palm of the left hand. Fuck, that was a lot to get through. <laughs> so many victims in such a short amount of time. It was like he went berserker mode from the very beginning. Fucking right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And far from finished. With 12 bodies to his name and all kills taking place within 12 months, the heat was on for Veneman. And as he said earlier, after a few rounds of questioning, Veneman decided to get out of Dodge and hopped on a bus to the east, choosing to hide out in Georgetown until the heat died down, or at least until he could figure out the next step to his plan. Okay. Because these guys always have a great plan. <laughs> <laughs> Now, as we pointed out in our last episode, Georgetown, Washington was the home of the Jesuit community and Georgetown University, a place where the Jesuits studied and learned their craft. I also made the point that Veneman's main motivation was to rebel against his Bible-thumping preacher father and his Christian teachings. So being around all these priests was too much of a temptation for the killer who, as you just said, was kind of stuck in a permanent berserker mode. Mm -hmm. This paired with the fact that he blamed his father's police interview as a reason for him being so high on the police suspect list, Veneman was enraged and directed that anger towards the Christians, vowing now to continue killing even after being identified. Actually more so because of being identified so to bring shame to his father's name and to cause him pain through destruction of his re reputation and legacy. Yeah, it's pretty common for preacher sons to follow in their father's footsteps 
Usually it's a job passed down from generation to generation. But in this case, James was determined to do the completely opposite thing, putting his father's divine power in question. Why would God give a truly devout servant such a demonic offspring? What was wrong with him? What did he do wrong to deserve this punishment? In turn, causing his flock to become smaller and smaller as the massacre continued. So feeling slighted by his father and surrounded by holy men, Veneman made his next move. Shooting Jesuit priest father John Borman at Point Blank Ridge on the Georgetown University campus. Along with his usual ritual of removing the right index finger and putting the mark of the Gemini in the palm of the left hand, Veneman decapitated the priest, replacing his head with that of the head of a statue of Christ, which he had stolen from the nearby church earlier that day. One week later, at around 1am, he entered the same church where he had stolen the statue from. There he found Father William Blaney and Father William Friedkin, who were cleaning up after a special midnight mass. Veneman bludgeoned Father Blaney to death with a large crucifix he found on the altar. He then found Father Friedkin cowering in a confessional booth, trying to hide. He stabbed the priest 56 times before again removing Father Blaney's head, resting them both on the altar in full view of whoever, whatever unfortunate soul was destined to find them. Again, he took the finger and the left palm was marked with the Gemini symbol. So Washington knows they have the Gemini, Gemini even killer on the loose. Yeah, Kinderman was assigned to the case at the time, but after getting a few good leads, the trail went cold and the Gemini killer made his way back home to sunny California. And at this stage, the cops in San Francisco know he's the Gemini killer, right? He was very high on the suspect list. Before he did a runner and with the three killings in Georgetown happening at the same time, he was MIA from California. They were pretty sure they had their guy and they were just waiting for him to get back into town so they could arrest him for questioning and serve a search warrant on his home thing is though veneman was pretty strapped for cash at this point and while the cops were stalking the bus stations train stations and airports veneman was hitching his way across the country so his re-entry to the state went completely unnoticed just dawned on me there i don't know if they ever looked into it but if he was hitchhiking across the country i wonder there's a couple of cold cases attached to him the whole way across but again i suppose that's up to the police in America to look into, not yep. me. I just talk about this shit. So I said he went unnoticed, at least until April 30th, 1971, when Susan Marie Lynch, age 22, was discovered murdered, having been buried alive near East Levy Road in Sacramento, one half mile north of Del Paso Road and 0.6 miles southwest of the Hilburn dump site. The finger removal and scarification of the palm were done anti-mortem or before dead. Nasty fucking asshole. Any idea why he went back into the old emolar? I thought it would be religious figures and decapitations from here on in. Me too, but that seems to have been a Georgetown thing in the priest bit. Well, you know, the priest bit was anyway. Yeah. Because on May 15, 1971, Linda Diane, age 19, was found in a ditch alongside a rural road, beaten to death at Half Moon Bay. Her skull had been smashed and it appeared that her attacker had tried to decapitate her. Usually, that's a sign of a killer being interrupted in the process of the crime. That's exactly what it was. A man out walking his dog early in the morning came across the body of Diane and contacted police. Reports show she was only just dead when her body was found. So Veneman must have heard the man and the dog coming and decided to run. 
I sounds he like he completely ditched the whole astrology gimmick too since his return from Georgetown. Like I can't think of any significance to the date of May fifteenth. It's actually a very significant date to this story, though. Mm. It's the day of Regan's exorcism, and the next morning, Father Damien Karras will be pronounced dead in Georgetown. At the exact same time as Karras would die, the Gemini killer would also take his supposed last breath. You see, after being interrupted in the murder of Linda Diane, Veneman was left feeling unfulfilled and in his murderous haze attempted a poorly planned home invasion, snatching Lynn and Derek, aged 24, from her home in New Valley at around 2am. She was discovered strangled with a, st- a sock stuffed deep inside her mouth. I nearly said a stock Sock, 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 sock stuffed deep inside of it. That's disgusting. I think mm-hmm. it just shocked me that I couldn't fucking read it. <laughs> I, I always hear you, you hear that like, I, and I've heard of a couple of fucking murder cases like where like the women would have something like like clothes jammed down their mouth trying to they would act as a gag. Yeah, but the women would fucking suffocate on the fucking clothes, like obviously. But just the thought of someone sticking something like that, yeah, you're no. fucking nasty. Um, the killer was in the process of removing her finger and presumably after that her head when a patrol car happened by the secluded lane. Veneman again interrupted, made a break for it, but it was too late. The police had made a positive ID on the suspect. It was official. James Veneman was the Gemini killer. His face was all over the news within hours and it was only a matter of time before he was spotted and arrested and with his crimes he would surely fry. So similar to the Ramirez story again. It could be one and the same, even down to the religious undertones of the murder. It's so strange, right? I was convinced we did an episode. I was Even just before you said it there, I was convinced we did an episode on Ramirez for Real Monsters. I went back and checked it. <laughs> it turns out we haven't. like. But for some reason, it must have been like some drunken conversation we were having some night about him. I know we watched a documentary about We him. talked about him being not that attractive on... Multiple times, but I I mean, like, I feel like we got deep into the fucking actual story of him at some point. Mm. But I look back in our podcast, we have not talked about uh, him in depth yet. I could have sworn we did as well. It must have just been one night here when we were having a few drinks, and I just went off telling you about him or something. (laughs) Or I know we did watch the Night Stalker um, documentary, but that wasn't that. That was a while ago. Huh? That was our documentary. Eventually, Veneman was tracked down to the Golden Gate Bridge, to which an hour-long standoff ensued. At some point after that hour, negotiations broke down, and Veneman took a shot at what looked to be the entire San Fran Police Department. They were out in force to catch this guy. That shot led to a barrage of returning fire, which saw Veneman hit multiple times and launching him off the side of the bridge into the icy water below. His body was never recovered, lost to the sea. Mm, good fucking riddance. Davy Jones locker, isn't that what they say when you yep. go down the sea? At yeah, the very, very pirate same, themed. huh? Very pirate themed tonight. I know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At the very same time that James Veneman's body hit the water, Father Damien Carras hit the pavement at the end of the infamous Georgetown Steps. Coincidence, yes, but one Pazuzu would allegedly try to take advantage of, looking to punish Carras for his expulsion from the body of Regan McNeil, which brings us to the Lazarus Syndrome part of the show. As we explained earlier, Lazarus Syndrome is when a person who has been pronounced dead suddenly regains life. And after being brought to Georgetown University Hospital morgue, that's exactly what happened to Father Damien Karras. So the story is that there was an elderly priest named Brother Fane, right? Brother Fane 
was left to dress Father Karras and prepare the coffin and then seal the coffin because it was going to be a closed casket uh, situation. Um, after, according to everybody who was there, or John, mm. the priest afterwards, he dressed the body, he sealed the casket, and he went missing. Okay. And Father Fane, or Brother Fane, was never seen again. The thought was they didn't panic about it, though, because apparently Brother Fane really, really wanted... He, he had, like, some family, I think it was in Kentucky, and he really wanted to get a sign near Kentucky, in Kentucky, but he was never... The, the church never fucking put him there and mm. they cracked him up, but he always said he wanted to die at home. Okay. So he had had three... Two heart attacks at the time. Mm. So they, when he went missing... The other priests just assumed that he had went fucking home thinking that the end was near because he was in his 80s. Like, you yeah. Know? And they never thought any more of it. What actually happened is that when Damien Karras climbed out of his casket, it gave the priest a brother, I suppose, what are they, monks? A heart attack? Yeah, he had another heart attack and okay. died of fright. Okay. And uh, he is what went into the casket and was sealed. Yeah. So, yeah, they figured that out a lot later yeah. when, uh, when they uh, checked. <laughs> Imagine. Yeah. So, I want to point out as well, people are probably listening to us talk about this Lazarus syndrome. Like, one minute the person is dead and the next they're up talking and walking around. Chances are, if this happens to you, by the time your body regains activity, your brain will pretty much be mush from lack of oxygen. So, you're not dead, but you're going to be a vegetable for the rest of your life. Can I say that? A vegetable? Like, it seems like that kind of distasteful, was it? I don't know. But then again, I mean... I don't hear any of them complaining about it. So <laughs> let me know if it offends you. Yeah. <laughs> so, <okay. laughs> Sometimes I just wonder if you're trying to self-sabotage with the shit you say. Like. Anyway, this is how Karis was. Actually, he was a little better off than, you know, than just being fucking mush. I mean, realistically, for the amount of time he was dead, he should have been in a coma. But although his mind was completely gone, it seemed his body was still just about functional. Allowing him to stumble aimlessly around the streets of Washington, eventually being picked up by police and being left off at Georgetown General Hospital, where he was admitted to the psychiatric unit under the alias of John Doe Patient X. He was diagnosed catatonic and stayed that way in an open ward with other patients for years. For 12 years, he stayed that way until January 1st, 1983. He started making sounds as if he was trying to talk. Not long after this, he began to become extremely violent. And after an incident where he severely injured a young nurse, Patient X was put into a padded room with a straitjacket. This is where he would remain for the next 19 years until 1990 when Lieutenant Kinderman was on a case that strongly resembled that of the Gemini case from 19 years earlier. While following a lead, Kinderman found himself in the psych wing of the Georgetown General Hospital. The lead fell flat, and as he was leaving, he claims that he had been drawn to this big security door. When he inquired about the door, Dr. Scott Temple, who had been giving the lieutenant a tour of the ward, excitedly ushered Kinderman over to the door to show him the hospital's super-secure, disturbed ward. So apparently, in uh, Kinderman's book, he was saying, it's like, there's this huge metal security door. You go through that, and you're in a... Uh, a, a kind of little waiting hall mm. where there's another big security door. 
Then you go through that security door and door locks. And when you're on the inside, you have to put in a code to get out. You have to put in a pin code. That pin code pins an alarm in the reception. Then the reception will look at the camera to positively ID you are who you say who you were supposed to be. And then they'll open the they door open to the let door. you out. And okay. the pin code is changed in every single day. Okay. So, so this secure. is a hard yet. Yeah, it isn't an easy place to get out. Mm, mm. He also said then as he was passing through the hallway, he could have sworn he heard somebody say his name. Okay. And he kind of glanced in at the cell where he thought it came from, but yeah. it was patient X and he had his head down. So what we know now was obviously Karis maybe recognizing yeah. his old friend. Okay, so Kinderman was there investigating the Gemini copycat killings. Do you want to jump into that now? Or? Yeah, but to do that, we have to go back a week or two before the reunion of Carson Kinderman in Georgetown General. So on May 14, 1990, the body of 12-year-old Thomas Kintry was found in a water sports store, decapitated and nailed to a cross made of rowing oars. In place of his head was the head of Christ, stolen from a nearby church statue. His right hand was missing its index finger, his left palm mutilated with a symbol, the sign of the Gemini. Back again after a long 19-year break. If that wasn't enough, the very next day, the body of Father Kavanagh was found in the same church the Christ head was stolen from. Like the statue, he was himself decapitated and sat in the booth, his head resting on his lap. Again, the right index finger missing and the symbol on the left palm was present. Funny enough, this priest, Father Kavanagh, was the same priest that gave Karras the permission to perform the exorcism in 1971. Fingerprints were taken from both crime scenes, neither matching with the other. In fact, one set of prints led the lieutenant to the Georgetown General Hospital psych ward. Closer to patient X. The prints belonged to Mrs. Mary Celia, but upon meeting Mary, it was very apparent to Kinderman that the woman couldn't be his killer. Mary, a long sufferer of dementia and Alzheimer's, was borderline catatonic. Dr. Temple even expressed his surprise that she interacted with Kinderman at all. So, like, the interaction, apparently, again, in Kinderman's book, mm. went with something like this. Uh, she asked if he was the radio repairman. He said he was. Mm. She said he asked to see the radio. She then replied, uh, I know you're lying because this is a telephone. Okay. She was holding nothing. <laughs> and uh, she didn't give him much more information, but that was kind of enough to tell him that Despite her fingerprints being there inexplicably, you know, she definitely wasn't, wasn't the killer. Yeah. He was just trying to figure out why those prints were there. Mm. And uh, he wasn't going to get that info from her. No. So obviously at this point, Kinderman is starting to worry. The killings are the same MO as the Gemini and Venom's body was never recovered from the Golden Gate River. He thinks maybe the Gemini is back. That thought is there, but Kinderman had seen Venom and gunned down. He was in San Francisco liaising with the SFPD on the Gemini case when the net closed in on Venom for the last time. It was his belief no man could survive such a barrage of bullets and the cold and current of the Golden Gate River that night. No, Kinderman feared the idea of a copycat more than he thought that Venom had somehow survived and resumed his killing spree. I mean, if he's alive the last 19 years, why wait till now to make a comeback anyway? Yeah, unless he's in hiding recuperating. 
very slowly. I mean, it's not completely unheard of. When we covered Michael Myers over Halloween, we saw that he did the exact same thing, or was well, similar, from 2018, 2022. 2022, 2022, 2022, 2022, 2022 yeah. <laughs> but that was only four years, not 19. And can we really compare any killer to Myers? I mean, when it comes to being a complete beast both mentally and physically yeah i suppose so we're getting closer to the reunion of kinderman and karis but before we get there we have one more crime scene to investigate this one hitting kinderman a little closer to home you see father dyer was admitted to georgetown general for some tests in relation to breathing problems yeah i read the guy smoke like 40 a day so you're smoking too much <laughs> free diagnosis for you Either way, the testing required, he stayed over a few nights. And on May 19th, 1990, sometime between 4.30 and 5 a.m., Father Joseph Dyer was murdered in his hospital room. The investigation concluded that Dyer had been drugged, leaving him unable to move but still be conscious and able to feel what was happening to him. Then a three-foot catheter was placed in his inferior vena cava. The tube moved through the vein under the crease in his arm into the vein that leads directly into his heart. Using this tube, the killer emptied the fa- emptied father dire emptied the father <laughs> emptied the father into <laughs> emptied father dire of every drop of blood in his body, filtering them into small plastic cup-like containers, leaving them on a hospital tray by the body's bedside. How many cups did he have? Twenty-one. Yuck. The reason for this was so there would be no mess left upon decapitation. In fact, the room was spotless, with the only blood not neatly stored away in cups being the blood on the wall over Father Dyer's bed. Used to send a message to Kinderman, the blood-soaked words read, It's a wonderful life. Making reference to the last movie the friends had watched together on Damien's anniversary. Again, the index finger was missing and the mark of the Gemini was on the left hand. There's another little detail. And that is wonderful was spelt with two L's, which was also something the Gemini was or not yeah, the Gemini killer was known to do. Mm. With his letters he always added an L for some fucking okay. weird reason. After Dyer's death, extra security was put in the hospital, specifically the ward where the murder had taken place, and the staff working that night were questioned. That night, nurse Nancy Allerton was the sole nurse on the ward. She claimed that she had spoken briefly with Dyer at 4.30 a.m. as she came to his room to give him medication. She discovered his body a half hour later when she returned to check on the priest. In the meantime, she had been dealing with Mrs. Mary Celia. Celia? Fuck this bitch's name. Celia, who she found passed out on the floor near the priest's room. Mrs. Celia. Poor Mary. Yeah, Mary, <laughs> ah, old Mary from down the road, was brought to the room <laughs> where the crime was committed and questioned, but her mental state made the whole exercise futile. Next, the investigator went to inspect the possible instrument used in the decapitation of three victims. The hospital pathologist reported a missing instrument. I couldn't find the name of the instrument, but it essentially worked like a garden shears with the blade. was kind of shaped like a crab claw is mm. the best way I can put it. Like a giant people scissors. Okay. The pathologist told Kinderman he had a set of these shears taken from his lab and that the spring-loaded shears would be the ideal tool to take someone's head off. So it had like a kind of spring in it. So it was easy enough to open mm. and then it would snap back closed once you released it. Okay. It was apparently used for dissecting people in okay. some way. 
So after this death and rumours of the Gemini MO resurfacing, the press went batshit crazy with venom and return stories. This association and return to the press prompted Dr. Scott Temple to reach out to Kinderman about one of his patients. The patient that had caught Kinderman's eye last time he was in the disturbed unit of the hospital, that being patient X. He told Kinderman the patient's backstory, but added that in recent weeks, patient X had been complaining of dreams where he fell down a large flight of stairs. Then at the same time the killing started, he began to claim to be James Veneman, the Gemini killer, even giving details of the killings to the doctor. Details Kinderman knew had been held back from the press, meaning only the police and the killer would have known what patient X allegedly knew. Obviously, Kinderman was curious and wanted to talk with the man who claimed to be James Veneman. But to his shock and horror, when he entered the padded room with patient X, it wasn't the face of James Veneman he saw. No, instead, he saw a ghost. Damien Karras, or at least someone who resembled him very closely. You have to remember Karras' age, 19 years, and he hasn't exactly led a healthy life. He looked haggard, battered, and tired. So at first, Kinderman didn't believe his eyes. He ordered extra security be put on the ward and the hospital in a hole. He also demanded access to every file they had on the man known only as Patient X, which were extremely thin files, apparently. But not even extra security could stop the Gemini killer from striking again. And that night he took the head of the nurse in charge of the same ward as where Father Dyer had been killed. So apparently this all happened in the same area. And she was just basically walking around doing her, her nightly checks. And someone came out with those shears and took her head off. But on top of that, her body was found to have been opened up organs harvested mm. and replaced with shit tons of rosary beads yeah mm-hmm. on top of that that morning dr temple was actually found dead in his room as well but that was natural causes he had a stroke oh but it was just you know coincidence um the gemini or patient x would later go on to kind of claim that it was a suicide by, uh, by dr temple by dr temple but uh, the, 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 the report comes back as a stroke, massive stroke. Okay, okay. But that nurse killing happened like literally in the five minutes it took for the cops to do the shift change, yeah? Yep, pretty much. <laughs> Kinderman reached out to the Jesuit Institute for Dental Records, DNA swabs or fingerprints of Karras that they may still have on file but had no luck. He then had the priest's remains exhumed. That's when he got his break. While the body was too badly decomposed for a positive ID at the time, we can today confirm the body in the grave was that of Brother Fane. And although he had no way to positively prove the man in cell 11 in Georgetown General's Damien Karras, he knew in his gut that was who it was. He claimed to know straight away when he looked at the skeletal remains in the old coffin, he was sure the heights didn't match. I think he'd already kind of convinced himself before the exhumation, so, you know, he was just using anything to confirm it. But Brother Fane was known for being tall, so there was that. The skeleton would look smaller, slightly smaller than the coffin. Well, I don't know, but he picked it up that way. Okay. So with the case growing cold and no notable suspects outside a little old semi-catatonic lady, Kinderman found himself with no choice but to investigate Karras and his claims that he was possessed by the soul of James Veneman. I might mention we get all this information from Kinderman's book Legion, which catalogues the whole story as he saw it at the time. 
Straight off the bat, Kinderman went into the cell accusing the man known as Patient X of being Father Damien Karras. To which the patient replied, I am James Veneman, the Gemini Killer. Kinderman pointed out that the Gemini Killer was dead, to which Patient X replied, No, I'm not. I'm alive. I go on. I breathe. Look at me. Look at me and tell me what you see. He then went on to give details of an old Gemini crime that the police had withheld and asked, How else could I know the details? Possession? Divine intervention? Telepathy? He then proceeded to explain another murder, a new one, since the last was from his original run. He said, I like plays. The good ones. Shakespeare. I like Titus Andronicus. The best, it's sweet. Incidentally, did you know that you're talking to an artist? I sometimes do special things to my victims. Things that are creative. Of course, it takes knowledge. Pride in your work. For example, a decapitated head can continue to see for approximately 20 seconds. So when I have one that's gawking, I always hold it up so that it can see its body. It's a little extra I throw in for no no added charge. I must admit, it makes me chuckle every time. Life is fun. It's a wonderful life, in fact, for some. It's too bad about Father Dyer. I killed him, you know. An interesting problem, but finally it worked. First, a bit of the old succilicoline to permit one to work without uh, annoying distractions. Then, a three-foot catheter treaded directly into the inferior vena cava, or superior vena cava. It's a matter of taste, I think, don't you? Then the tube moves through the vein, under the crease of the arm, into the vein that leads directly into the heart. And then you just hold up the legs and you squeeze the blood manually into the tube from the arms and the legs. There's a little shaking and pounding at the end for the dregs. It isn't perfect. There's a little blood left, I'm afraid. But regardless, the overall effect is astonishing. And it isn't that really what counts in the end. Yes, of course, good show business, Lieutenant, the effect. And then off comes the head without spilling one single drop of blood. Now I call that showmanship, Lieutenant. This this upset Kinderman who gave the man a thump in the nose for his troubles. Kinderman asked how Veneman had supposedly ended up in Karras' body, to which he replied... Well, there I was, awfully dead, lying face down in the Golden Gate River. I didn't like it. Would you? It's upsetting. There was still so much killing to do, and there I was in the void without a body. But then, along came, well, my friend. You know, one of them. Those others over there, the cruel ones, the master. He taught my work should continue. But in this body, this body in particular, in fact, let's call it revenge, a certain matter of an exorcism, I think, in which your friend Father Karras expelled certain parties from the body of a child. Certain parties were not pleased, to say the least, the very least. And so, my friend, the master, he devised this pretty scheme as a way of getting back, of creating a stumbling block, a scandal. A horror to the eyes of all men seeking faith. Using the body of the saintly priest as an instrument of, well, you know, my work. 
But the main thing is the torment of your friend Father Karras as he watches what I rip and cut and mutilate the innocent, his friends, and again and again, on and on. He's inside with us. He'll never get away. His pain won't end. Kinderman said Karras was insistent that the recent string of murders be confirmed to the press as the return of the Gemini. He seemed almost obsessed with the idea, threatening Kinderman that if he didn't confirm the news to the press, he would punish him as a result, then asked if he'd like to dance. Bit random. Murder, death, possession, demons. Oh, and hey, wanna dance? Not random at all, actually. It was, in fact, a real threat. So, now, first of all, I would like to point out that it's very, very much a Zodiac thing for him to do as well, to insist and threaten it with, with, for the insistence of his shit to be put into the media. Mm. Because the Zodiac insisted on his stuff being put in the paper, and if it wasn't put in the paper the next day, he was threatening to kill a bunch of people. Okay. So it's the same here. So he's threatening here um, Kinderman, and he asks him if he'd like to dance. Now, there's a little thing that I left out. Mm. And that is this round of killings had an, an an extra pattern to it. And that was every victim had uh, the letter K in their name. First, in it start of one of their names. Mm. So you had Thomas Kintry, Father Kavanagh, Father Joseph Kevin Dyer, Nurse Keating. And on top of that, Kinderman had a daughter, Julie, who was a professional dancer. Okay. Now, obviously, the Master Gemini was talking about was Pazuzu, right? Like, getting his revenge on Karis. Yeah. And just like the last case in 71, these Pazuzu-related murders would go down as unsolved cold cases with patient X dying of natural causes the very same evening that he made the threats to Kinderman. Nurse Keating being the final victim attributed to the rounds of killings. No suspect, no real evidence, no resolution. Well, that's a very unsatisfying ending. That's only the official ending. Want to hear Kinderman's ending? Nah, I'm good. We'll just leave it there. <laughs> so the first part of this story is what is officially in the court records okay mm. kinderman worried that with his daughter being a dancer by trade and their name being kinderman that she will be gemini's next target worried enough that he tried to bring home but each time he tried the line was tied up feeling in his gut that something terrible was coming he went to try a different phone located in the nurse's station there, he discovered Nurse Nancy Arlington dead on the floor in her underwear, her nurse's uniform gone. Panicking and needing to get home, Kinderman ran outside to find a patrol car and ordered a uniform cop inside to get him to his house fast. It turns out Kinderman's cop gut instincts were right because when he got to his house, a woman in a nurse's uniform with Allerton's, Allerton's name tag attached to it was sitting in his dining room, staring into the distance as if she was waiting for something or someone. So, again, okay, no, this is where things get a little bit fucking strange because the lady in question is a mental uh, patient at the hospital who had done this. And, um, again, there's no explanation for this because this lady ends up dead by the end of the seat a bit here. Okay. But um, this is what fucks are. Like I said, this story doesn't really have much of a resolution and it seems like a cult of old people went out and killed a bunch mm-hmm. of people, but obviously they weren't able for this. Yeah. So this lady is sitting here in the nurse's uniform. We know she's killed someone already. 
because to get the nurse's uniform. Mm. But as she sits there, she seems harmless. She seems like she doesn't really know where she is or what she's doing. And Kinderman's kind of like, all right, calm down. He tells the uniform cop to calm down. There's no worries. Mm. And uh, we're going to ring the hospital and get her sent back. At which point this woman pulls those big shears we were talking about earlier mm. out of her fucking bag and goes for Kinderman's daughter. It was a case of Kinderman's um, mother-in-law was standing right next to the daughter mm. and she saw her coming and grabbed her literally as the blade was about to snap close. Jeez. So I mean like fucking a hair away from being decapitated. Mm. Um, as they grabbed the woman to try and hold her down and get her away from fucking Kinderman's daughter, the woman had a massive heart attack and died. And died, okay. And that was the end of that, so we got no answers there either. Mm. Obviously, this was the last straw for Kinderman, who had decided at this stage to put an end to the madness once and for all. Now again, there's two versions of this story. The official medical and court reports, and the story Kinderman tells in his book. I'll let you decide which is true. But before we get into it, I have one more little story to throw in here. Mm. Kinderman said in his book, the night before this all went down, he had this dream. And in the dream, he said, he went to patient X's cell. He said when he got there, there was a white-haired priest performing an exorcism on him. Mm. And that Pazuzu, who was controlling patient X, was, had taken, was winning the battle in the exorcism in this dream. He says that the priest was basically dying in the dream and Kinderman came in and started to try and fight back against the demon and trying to help Karis. Mm. To which he said in the dream he was pushed back up against the wall and pinned to the wall in a symbol of Christ. His arms stretched out as if he was on the cross, legs together. And he said the ground opened up and the victims of the, the most recent victims of the Gemini started to come out. Like the kid who had his head cut off. That kid, <coughs> excuse me, that first kid had a lot of relevance as well to Kinderman because he was a part of a, a do you know, like how in America they have these like uh, police clubs for like youths, sort yeah. of thing, especially in like gang related areas or rundown areas or, or yeah. like lesser income yeah. to try and influence the kids to be, you know, mm. go on the straight and be a, lead a good life. Yeah. And um, this kid was, had, was actually a part of that and Kinderman knew that first kid. Okay. So that, that was upsetting for him enough, like, yeah. you know, to, to be fully invested in this. So he said in the dream, this kid is coming out of the ground and that he's, you know, they still has the Christ head on his, on his, on his shoulders and he's pinned to a cross. And then he said, Karis, came out of the ground and was pinned to the cross and was screaming at him saying finish him please please save my soul finish him and all this kind of shit mm. and then he closed up and he said in the dream the Karis gave him a couple of seconds and fought Pazuzu in the body to free himself for a couple of seconds to get Kinderman to shoot him and finish off the whole thing and then Kinderman says he just woke up mm. Um, what actually happened is, according to court records and medical records, uh, kind- Kinderman entered the padded room to confront the man who claimed to be James Veneman. After telling him his plan had failed, officially patient X replied with to him, what does it matter? The old man is gone. No one left the shame. My work is done. Then he kneeled over and died from heart failure. 
It's a fucking common thing hearing them all drop into the heart fucking yeah. back. So, I mean, there's, there's that weird connection in as well. Yeah, true. Crazy thing is Venom's fa- actual father died that same day. In fact, the time of death between Venom's father and patient X is just five minutes in the difference. Mm. In Kinderman's book, he says, after telling patient X he had failed, the man replied that there will be plenty more chances to get her. To which Kinderman pulled out his gun and filled the alleged killer or killer full of bullets. He also claims that before putting the last slug in the inmate's head, he heard a man speak clearly in Karras' voice. Bill, no. Shoot now. Kill me now. We won, Bill. Now I'm free. And with that, the lieutenant claims to have ended the madman's life. And from that day, the killing stopped. Pretty much, yeah, that was it. That was done. Now, I believe the first version more than the second version. The first version, for number one, is more paranormal, which is cool for that story. You know, dying straight after Venom's yeah. father and, and that connection. And uh, the thing and the thing of if Kinderman's version was true and he wrote about it in his biography, so if they had evidence of this, he would have been arrested for killing this fucking mental yeah. man. You know, sure. <laughs> this crazy guy. <laughs> so, um... From that day, yeah, the killing stopped, the strange activity stopped, the crazy old people, that murder scene stopped, it all stopped. It kills me that the crimes went unsolved. Yep, crimes unsolved and the truth about Karis Veneman Veneman and Kinderman unresolved. Unfortunately, like all cases of paranormal activity, we're forced to follow the little bit of evidence that may or may not be provided and trust the testimony of those who allegedly witnessed the events. After this case, the already over-retirement age lieutenant called it a day on his career, choosing to spend his golden years regularly going to the cinema and working on his memoirs, Legion, My Battle with Pazuzu. At the end of his book, Kinderman talks about his belief in God and how the two events he witnessed had affected his faith both in God and humanity. He concluded that he believes, The Big Bang was Lucifer falling from heaven. And that the entire universe, including humanity, are the broken parts of Lucifer. And that evolution is the process of Lucifer putting himself back together as an angel. It is his hope that someday Lucifer will complete his task and be readmitted to heaven, closing the doors on hell and its demons permanently, and leaving humanity to live in paradise forevermore. And that's it, Pazuzu Part 2 done and dusted, ending the already confusing tale on a mystery. Was Pazuzu real? Did the Gemini killer really possess Damien Karras' already dead body? Answers we will unfortunately never know. But I do know one thing, and that's that we are coming in hard with this new year. Yeah, that was a heavy, super detailed two-parter. Way to set the bar high, though, at the start of the year. Yeah, that research took me to some deep, dark places the past two weeks. That's why I'm looking forward to next week so much. Yeah, me too. I've already started the research, and we're going to have a lot of fun with next week's episode. Fun in the Harverse. What could go wrong? Only one way to find out, and that's to come back here next week and check out what we have in store for you. Until then, don't forget to like and subscribe us on Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, Audible, Google Podcasts, Acast, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, you can follow us on all socials at Alive Alive Pod or follow my page at Amy Rose IA for some great content, pictures, and podcast updates. It's Alive Alive Podcast, all the guts and gore, none of the guilt. See you all next time. Same Alive Alive time, same Horrorverse channel. Love you. Bye bye. Hey, ladies. Love you. Bye bye.